Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today we are joined by unofficially Dr. Husni, um, who has just uh, completed his, uh, basically completed his PhD. Um, thank you for joining us, Dr. Husni. Uh, you're welcome, welcome. And, and thank you for inviting me on your podcast, uh, Brother Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I think it's also important to note that uh, Dr. Husni was my tutorial teacher when I was in Malaysia. Um, so uh, we had good times together in person and now we are, uh, we are online. Um, but Dr. Husni, tell me about your research because right now we're discussing Salahuddin. We're studying the Crusades, um, the reasons behind Salahuddin's success. Um, can you give us a brief introduction of what your PhD was on? Yeah, yes. Uh, thank you again, uh, Brother Ahmed, for inviting me on your podcast. So uh, I've just finished my uh, Viva uh, to defend my uh, research thesis. Uh, the, the topic title that I, I was uh, doing was on uh, this particular figure, uh, Sheikh Ali ibn Abu Bakr al-Harawi, and uh, he was uh, one of the uh, military advisors to Sultan uh, Salahuddin, or uh, his real name, uh, Yusuf bin Ayyub. Uh, that's, that, was, that is what gave him the, 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 uh, the, uh, the epithet uh, al-Ayyubi. So uh, Sheikh Ali ibn Abu Bakr al-Harawi, uh, was one of the uh, writer of a military uh, treatise. There were three uh, treaties which uh, Sultan Salahuddin had uh, commissioned during his campaign. And uh, there's a scholar by the name William Hamblin. He uh, wrote about this and he identified uh, that during that time, the, one of the success, the contributing factor to Salahuddin's success was uh, military reforms that he had made. So that was uh, the contributing success uh, to Salahuddin's uh, victory. Because uh, if you see in history, uh, many people uh, can ask, uh, uh, we have other types of military treatises, for example, in the East, a very popular uh, military treaties was the Sunzu art of war or in, mm. in Chinese uh, Sunzi Bingfa and then uh, in the west you have uh, you have like Wom uh, Kritch uh, written by uh, Cloud Switch and then you have uh, Machiavelli uh, who wrote mm. uh, Le Arte Guerra uh, the art of uh, war and uh, but we don't have we do we don't seem to have any military treaties uh, that was written by the Muslims. Although in history we know that the Muslims were very uh, successful in in warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, you can read up uh, Irfan Shahid, his uh, book, I mean voluminous book on uh, the Romans and the Arabs. Uh, and then uh, Byzantines and the Arabs. Uh, he talked about how the Arabs, prior to the coming of Islam, they were very much uh, close to the world powers and world civilizations uh, of that time. These, we were talking. We are talking about. Uh, this is talking about third, third, fourth, and fifth century before the advent of Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and. Uh, we know from his reading the about the formation. Uh, this is Ahzab before the Ahzab uh, mentioned in the Quran, the confederates, which uh, the Romans and then uh, the Byzantines termed as uh, federati. That's how we get the word federation. I mean, mm -hmm. confederate, uh, the confederates, the, the Ahzab mentioned in the Quran. So this is realizing that. The Arabs, uh, they had been very much enculturated with uh, with the Rome with the Romans, 
with the Persians and then the particular tribe of uh, Rasan, the Rasanids, they used to form lots of this uh, Federati, which later they were known as, they were the ones uh, whom the West knew as the Saracini, uh, or in English, uh, when you, you Englishize it, when you Anglicize it, uh, it is mentioned as, it is uh, mentioned as the Saracens. So, so these were the people who, they were plying their trade in the Roman Empire during that time before uh, the Holy Prophet uh, was born, uh, the Arabs were very much involved in the conflict between Rome and Persia. Persia mm -hmm. by the Achaemenid uh, Empire and Rome and the various uh, Roman uh, emperors. So, so it is no surprise if you look at from this uh, perspective, it is no surprise that by the time the, the Holy Prophet uh, arrived uh, and then Arabs, they were very much acquainted with the military arts of the Roman and the Persian and the Persians. So when Islam uh, rose as a world power, they had little trouble, you know, uh, fighting these two uh, empires and, and overcoming them because they were so used to the military, military strategies and tactics of both uh, empires to overcome them. So mm -hmm. you see from there, little wonder why you know uh, the the prophet uh, triumphed, the uh, the uh, successor caliph, the Khulafa Ar Rashidun, Sina Abu Bakar, Sina Omar, Sina Ali, they Sina Osman. They were very much successful in expanding uh, the Muslim uh, territories, but then again, this word, uh, this word uh, Fatah, has been. Uh, I think there's a mistake in translating it into to mean conquest because it means it comes from the word uh, Fataha, meaning Al Fatiha, meaning to open, to open. yeah, to open. The territory is to what to the religion of Islam, and many of this. Even if you see uh, Anika Benison, she wrote in the in her work on about the caliph. Uh, she talked that, that she talked about the fact that many of these conquests were really actually uh, not conquests, but they were invitations upon the Muslim rulers. Uh, say for example in the case of Spain uh, there were conflict among the Visigoth uh, kings the these were the remnants of the uh, western half of the Roman Empire they were gladly inviting Muslim rulers to come and intervene on their behalf and accept their religion and that's how you know mm -hmm. Islam came to that part of the world but uh, but with regards to military strategy, with regards to military treaties, how come that we never hear uh, works like uh, the kind of that Sun Tzu write in our tradition? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, actually they are. I mean, uh, Abdurrahman Zaki he studied this, but this was long time ago. Imagine the last time that the study of this this kind had been made was in the 1960s. Hmm. Abdurrahman Zaki, he lists uh, the military treatises that were written, the earliest being Muhtasar Siyasatul Harb uh, by uh, Sha'rani Harthami, who was the advisor to uh, Khalifa al-Ma'mun. This is between 830 to 870. This was... Hmm. During also after the right after in the aftermath of the Abbasid civil war, uh, that uh, Khalifa al Ma'mun earned his throne. I mean, he supplanted his uh, his other brother uh, Khalifa al Amin, and that's what the time. That's that was what the time when the earliest one of the earliest military teachers called Muhtasar Siyasatul Harb was written, and then after that, uh, we don't. We don't see any more treatises emerging. I mean, right now, uh, 
um, maybe I could be falsified. I'll be, I could be falsified later. But wait, yet we yet have yet to see uh, treatises of that kind emerge again right after Muhtasar. So this is this comes to my uh, focus. Why is it that? How is it that Salahuddin al Ayyubi was able to repeat the success of uh, Khalifa Omar? In 649, he was able to, after the Muslims lost uh, Jerusalem, how he was able to uh, retake uh, Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. What was his secret? So Hamlin said that the, there was a military reform that took place during Salahuddin's time. And the Ayyubids, they, in history, it was written that they effected many of these reforms, uh, reforms of the of the spiritual kind, of the material kind, of the military uh, kind, and mm. there were three, at least three. He identified at least three military uh, treatises that were written to to this effect. One is uh, Nahjul Masluk by Al Shayzari, uh, talking about. Uh, reforms in administration, in government uh, policies. Uh, and then the second one was Tabsirat uh, Arbab Al-Albab. I mean, the, uh, I mean uh, insights into the masters of the quintessential. I mean, uh, this, is, this covers uh, the topic on conventional warfare, what kind of weapons that they can use in, in combat uh, the various siege uh, weaponries, the strategies and tactics on the battlefield. And then there were the third, uh, there was the third uh, military treatise by Sheikh Ali in Abu Bakr al-Harawi uh, called Tazkira al-Harawiyah fil Hiyal Harbiyah. This uh, al-Harawi's council on military strategy of literally it is the uh, stratagems of war so, so now it struck into it struck me as uh, interesting because it talks about unconventional warfare it talks about uh, unconventional strategy and tactics it talks about and how uh, in the overall after talking about uh, reforms of administration uh, reforms of uh, the people, the public, and then he talks about you know, strategies, the winning uh, strategies that could be used in the battlefield in order to win uh, wars. So that's how I come to be interested in this particular uh, work, uh, Brother Ahmed. Mm. So, so basically, it's interesting because we. Yeah. Whenever we talk about the art of war, we're always thinking of Sun Tzu, um, yes. as if you know he's kind of the person who created it. But the art of war has been around. It's just in foundational texts, um, like Muslim societies, they clearly knew it. And yeah. the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "Al al 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 harbu khada, uh, war yes. is deception." Yeah. Um, and so you know Khalid bin Walid, they knew these ideas, but it seems that they did not. Um, uh, canonize these teachings and so ultimately what happened is during the period of after the uh, the, the Rashidun um, many of many of these ideas were probably forgotten or they were neglected and Salahuddin al-Ayubi kind of emerges at a time where um, he understands the importance of these things like you mentioned in your thesis that um Salahuddin would have uh, council meetings and they would read books on the campaigns of Persia, the battles of the Arabs, the liberation of Asham, and also the life and conduct of the Prophet And to me, when I read something like this, it's like, you know, they were addicted um, in a good sense on the idea of war and the idea of reading back into history and seeing what did the Salaf, what did the Prophet ﷺ, how did they engage in warfare to try to um, use those tactics to liberate Jerusalem? Is that a correct assessment? Uh, I think uh, because, like I said before, 
uh, the Arabs were very much enculturated with the Romans and the Persians. They know the battle tactics employed by these two great civilizations. And during that time, war was even more, even worse. They were brutal. Uh, in fact, uh, if you read, uh, uh, I think Professor Jonathan A.C. Brown, he wrote a book on Islam and slavery. Yeah. Um, during that time, remember the Romans, they were even uh, brutal in subjugating uh, the empires, uh, the other states that they conquered. And you can see how in, uh, in, 50, in 50 BC, I mean, uh, how Julius Caesar, he launched campaign into Gaul in Britannia. Yeah. Uh, and he subjugated the Gauls, uh, the Gaelic uh, people there. And uh, there is the Battle of Alicia, uh, where he fought uh, the Gaelic commander by the name of Vesigetorix. And uh, they defeated and they exterminated these people. And even Roman history is, is fraught very much with the bloody conquest and extermination of, of people. Uh, you can read up uh, more on, on that Roman history, but we don't, we, we don't go into the details of that. Mm -hmm. But with the coming of Islam, they are, the Arabs they were already enculturated, as I said, they knew exactly uh, the military doctrines of the, uh, of the Romans. And if we read uh, Al-Tabari, the history of Tabari, mm -hmm. they knew also the military doctrines of the Persians. So they have a sort of advantage, uh, cutting edge uh, te technology during that time, and also the strategy and tactics to defeat these two civilizations, which explains, uh, I mean, why... Uh, during the time of the Persians and the Romans, the Arabs never evolved into a civilization mm -hmm. simply because they had no reason to. There were two large empires and they were, there were times when they were fighting for the Romans and there were times when they were fighting for the Persians. Uh, mm -hmm. They were content just to do that. But when Islam came, these, Islam gave them the reason to build uh, a civilization, uh, the term Tamadun comes from the word Deen, religion. Really, if uh, the, the religion starts to take roots in the hearts of the people, and then they will be moved to build, you know, cities and enact laws, and then you know, build uh, civilizations. Mm -hmm. So remember, the Romans when they were the first time that the Muslims encountered the Byzantines, uh, that was during the time the Battle of Bota when the Prophet when he's, he was sending, uh, he was sending uh, messengers out to bring Islam to people in the frontiers. Uh, they encountered in uh, somewhere uh, in Mukta, uh, they encountered the Ghassanids, uh, which were at that time the Christian clientele uh, people or tribe of the Roman Empire. And then uh, there were the soldiers, the, the Muslim army was led by uh, commanders, including uh, Khalid bin Walid. And it was like a 3,000 strong army against what Khalid report to be a vast number, uh, more than 10,000 uh, uh, Roman Byzantine soldiers. And they were defeated uh, during that time. It takes you know, seven years later that uh, Khalid Ibn Walid would make a comeback. But that's not my point. My point mm -hmm. is that the Romans, they used to employ uh, the slave people from the states and the countries which they have conquered uh, and make them into a uh, human shield. They would line them up in front of their, of their main battle uh, army and these people usually they were the it, it came from the Slavic uh, people. There you can, there comes the word slave, meaning slave, I'm coming sorry. from the word Slavic people, the mm -hmm. ancestors of the Russian people today. 
so uh, and and this is this has been what this had been what the muslim army, army had had to face whenever they are facing you know byzantine uh, army so mm-hmm. war was really brutal back then but when we read into muslim history we we read into the history of international law then you know that during the time of imam abu hanifa and then his students imam muhammad shaybani this was uh, this was 750 to 800 uh, he was the one who came up with siar meaning he when he wrote his book kitab siar al kabir uh, he wrote a book that that is a guidance to i mean the prototypical book to uh, international law there mm-hmm. he laid the foundations of 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 proper military engagement the uh, he he would later there will be uh, abul hasan al mawardi who come up with ahkam sultaniyah these were the people who laid the foundations of uh, guidance in in uh, re- uh, rules of engagement in uh, uh, international mm-hmm. uh, i mean uh, warfare and they regulated military power i mean uh, what to do when engaging a non-muslim uh, nation what to do when white flags are raised mm-hmm. and uh, not to kill old people uh, women children uh, the infirm and then not to destroy crops or animals uh, needlessly so so war became very very uh, regulated so when you say that from the thesis uh, when they talk about uh, what you suggest what you just said reading those materials uh, these were the strategy that al-harawi proposed to rouse people i mean uh, you know that there's this they are going to war they are going to liberate jerusalem you need to encourage uh, soldiers you need to encourage uh, commanders and how do they do it how do they remind themselves that this was for a just cause this was for the sake of uh, liberating uh, jerusalem a place that has uh, religious and spiritual significance to the muslims mm-hmm. this is a place where Uh, throughout history god has sent uh, his prophets there many of the israelite uh, prophets were there that's where uh, nabi isa or jesus christ uh, he, uh, he was born and he grew up and he delivered uh, ministrations and the how his uh, campaign got him into confrontation uh, with the uh, with with the rabbis uh, there and how uh, they contrived to have him uh, to have him uh, persecuted and then uh, it was made to them uh, that he was crucified and and that that was the place when prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam he traveled on that night of isra miraj he traveled from uh, masjid al haram to masjid al aqsa the furthest Uh, mosque. mosque there to meet with the 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 past all the past uh, prophets to lead them in a congregation uh, prayer and then from there he was he ascended araja he ascended the heavens to meet uh, god in person uh, he as a person to meet god and to receive the commandments including the commandments for the five uh, daily prayer which after the holy prophet uh, has passed away after sina abubakar has passed away and during the time of uh, khalifa umar uh, in 642 there he mobilized uh, upon this this recognition this world view of the, the of the uh, the specialty of that place he mobilized army to first to engage with the Byzantines in northern Syria and to cut off any uh, support from coming from uh, from the north northern Syria to come to Jerusalem he was encircling the whole region 
and when Jerusalem has been cut off from Byzantine support, the, only then he moved in to take uh, uh, Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So, so this was 500 years before uh, Salahuddin, and then uh, in the year 1099, when the uh, when the, first the Christians in Europe, mm. uh, they were, they were having. I mean, there were complaints that uh, they were facing harassments by the Seljuk Turks, which were now uh, largely Muslims. They were roaming Anatolia. They were the Turkic people, the nomadic uh, Turkic people, and they were marauding, according to them, marauding Anatolia and causing difficulties to pilgrims who were traveling from Europe, from Constantinople to Jerusalem to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, mm -hmm. where uh, Jesus was, uh, uh, where, where, where it is considered to be a special place by the Christians. So, so when, when you say that they were encouraging these things to be read, I mean, it connects that it is it is somewhat similar to what Emperor Maurice used in his strategy con to excite the soldiers with uh, tales of victories in past battles, but here they are connecting it with the important elements of the worldview that the history that uh, mm -hmm. the Fatah the conquests or so-called liberations were not bloody conquests that the Romans and the Persians uh, had perpetrated, had perpetrated, but it is to open, to liberate these lands to, so that Islam can come through, to liberate people who were oppressed by their previous rulers. So it's a war of liberation. And to remind them that even the prophet uh, engaged in war, for only for but only for a just cause and only to defend themselves, the the Khulafa al-Rashidun did the same to for the sake of Islam and for the sake of defending the frontiers of Islam and the Muslims, and the later uh, sultans. So I'm not sure if addiction is the right uh, word to mm -hmm. use, but it's pretty much like it. It is well. We have the other traditions in the hadith. The hadith tradition, the Tasawwuf tradition, the Qiraat, I mean, the reading of the Quran's tradition. But how come that this tradition, I mean, fighting uh, to defend in jihad, uh, to defend oneself from unbelieving enemies who, who are looking to kill you, who are looking to oppress you, uh, how come this never crystallized? Well, I have several, uh, I have one or two theories to that. But here we see that Salahuddin is not, I say, uh, overdoing it, but he's merely uh, trying to revive that tradition okay. of fighting war in a proper uh, manner. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that it is that it is uh, Brother Ahmed. No, no, I just I was using the word addicted just because uh, just as a joke, uh, as an exaggeration. But you know, it, it makes sense what you're saying. Um, yeah. The idea that Salahuddin Al-Ayyubi, one of the reasons why he was so successful is that he composed these military treatises um, wanting to understand the art of war. It's, and I love the fact you talked about the ethical framework. Um, yeah. There's an author named uh, Sven Lindquist who wrote his mm -hmm. book, A History of Bombing, who said the first ethical rules of engagement in, in warfare emerges from the Muslims. Um, and, um, so this idea that, you know, the people in the media have that Muslims are always, you know, bloodthirsty people. Well, you know, just open up the history books, read what yeah. the Romans did to when the Romans had Jerusalem, um, what they did to the Jewish people. And when the Persians had Jerusalem, what they did to the pagans. So, yeah. um, it's a completely false claim, but so we talked about the idea that Salahuddin al-Ayubi uh, may Allah have mercy on him, was successful at the military level. And he taught and he conducted these reforms. Um, and they studied these books, uh, trying to make sure that they understood the art of war well. But there's another thing that you talk about, which is this idea of Sunni revival. Um, and you talk about the relationship that Imam al-Ghazali 
um, who, ex who preceded Salahuddin by about um, half a century. Um, talk about what the Sunni revival is and, you know, the influence that Imam al-Ghazali had on Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. Yeah, I think uh, there are two books that talk about it mainly uh, that I referred to. One of them uh, was uh, this book called Hakaza uh, Zahra Jilush Salahuddin by Dr. Majid Irsan Kailani. Uh, he talked about how uh, the time, uh, the, the generation of Salahuddin was raised after a serious spiritual uh, revival uh, carried on by a chain of uh, spiritual masters and scholars, uh, one of them, uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jailani, and then you can trace back these efforts, you know, being handed down from one master to another, and you can trace it back to all the way to uh, Imam Ghazali. And uh, there's a second uh, book that I referred to was by Abdurrahman Azam, uh, Salahuddin, this, the Triumph of the Sunni Revival. I think it was, it was uh, published by ITS. So I referred mainly these two books to uh, come up with my own uh, theory of the Sunni Revival. You see, uh, Imam Ghazali was largely influential because even Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jalini talks about the, the term, the terms and term, terminologies that they used by the time of uh, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi were the same terms that Imam Ghazali had expounded during his lifetime. But uh, if you look into further into it, how did he arrive to that? Uh, we know that Imam Ghazali for a time, he was very successful in his career. And then, uh, it was normal during that time for uh, the scholars, uh, the, the rulers to, to organize or uh, to organize uh, debates. They would call scholars to debate their points and then reward winners mm -hmm. with uh, material uh, rewards, gold worth their weight. Um, so, but by the time of Imam Ghazali, he was already a successful scholars but he was also trapped in what uh, the fuqaha of his time were doing during his time and he himself uh, condemned this practice people who thought that they were so uh, good in the religious uh, sciences at debating the minute of uh, the religious techniques uh, that they have constricted the term uh, to just these technicalities mm -hmm. in the religious laws and they pride themselves uh, about it and they receive many much prestige and, and wealth and glory uh, from doing uh, such things so uh, Imam Ghazali he himself participated uh, in that uh, at some point of time and then he realized what was wrong uh, with it. And this brought him into a kind of uh, epiphany. He had a spiritual uh, awakening. He just realized that, just wait a minute, this is, what, this is not what the religion uh, is enjoining uh, Muslims mm -hmm. uh, to do. Religion is a means to reach God by... by uh, the rituals, by good deeds, by cultivating uh, good uh, spiritual uh, and, and moral uh, conduct within oneself and the others. So there's come a point in time when he was, uh, because of his conviction, because that religious truth, uh, he sees them uh, clearly and, and this has been this veil of uh, worldliness had been had been lifted from his uh, spiritual side that caused him to go into a kind of spiritual uh, retreat. He had this twice, mm -hmm. and one of them was when uh, he made this uh, excuse to the rulers, to his patrons, uh, to go to Hajj 
But after that, he immediately went to uh, Jerusalem to live a life of uh, seclusion. He did this for some 10 years, I think, from uh, 1091, I think, till 1095, that's uh, four or five years. That is the second uh, seclusion that he had. So during that time he was in Jerusalem, that was one, remember the 1092, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me on that. That was the time when the Turks, under the command of uh, Kilish Arsalan, they defeated uh, the Crusaders uh, in, uh, in the Battle of Manziker in, uh, in Anatolia. And uh, there was such a humiliation that they captured uh, a humiliation on behalf of the Byzantines when their, em their Emperor Romanos IV, I think, uh, was captured by the Turks. They were utterly humiliated and it was a disastrous, uh, the battle was a disastrous outcome for them. But it drives them, these, these cause what we call to be a casus belli for, for the Byzantines. Now they are sending uh, help. They are, they, are, they are asking help from the Pope, Pope, Pope Urban II, in 1095, and that caused the Pope to sound the clarion call. It was uh, issuing a papal bull calling the Western, the Latin states, the formerly states or the Western half of the Roman Empire mm -hmm. to gather in a crusade to free the lands, the Christian lands from uh, Muslim oppression, according to them. So, so in 1099, they have managed to master the army and they were trickling down from Europe to northern Syria. They were ransacking, rampaging in the countryside, conquering and establishing the first of the Crusader states, the, the county of Edessa and also Tripoli. And then they came down to Jerusalem and conquering. That was the time when Imam Ghazali was there doing his seclusion. And he had done so much introspection, uh, living the life of uh, an ascetic. He was there at the at, at the Jerusalem uh, mosque, uh, and then he was, you know, sweeping the floors of the mosque, doing uh, doing uh, spiritual exercises, praying, and that's when he was given, you know, much uh, illumination, but. On the other side, on the on the other, from the other perspective, that's when he heard that these people. Uh, remember, before that, he was writing this book called Kitab Al Fadaih Al Batiniyah, uh, Wal Fadail Al Mustazhiriyah. He was writing it as a treatise supporting the Imamate or the Caliphate of Khalifa Al Mustazhir, who just rose the throne, but the reason for him writing for this because he was protecting an institution that uh, that is supposed to be the umbrella protecting all Muslims because the mm -hmm. Imam is the necessary leader who uh, whose task is to protect the frontiers of the Muslim to make sure that uh, the Muslims laws were enacted to ensure that uh, they pray the Friday prayer and also uh, the two Eid's prayer. And, and uh, you see during that time, the caliphate was a titular, the caliph was a titular ruler. And you have down there, he's, uh, uh, there are many Muslim states, the Saljuk, the great Saljuk empire, the Ghaznavids, and, and many other, uh, you know, uh, sultanates under this huge uh, umbrella of the caliphate and they were much infighting among themselves. The Muslims were disunited and they were fighting uh, themselves. So Imam Ghazali, he was writing this book to support the institutions of the imamate so that they, the Muslims uh, have a protector. But the Muslims, they were fighting themselves and he narrowed down uh, the problem 
to the problem of the spiritual kind mm-hmm. these people were very much uh, influenced with well because they had grown into empires uh, the riches were pouring in they had become complacent they become materialistic they covet one another they attack their own muslim uh, uh, kinsmen and because of this they were overcome by they were able to the, the crusaders were able to overcome uh, them so uh, ghazali had looked into himself and he had gained illumination that's the reason he wrote the ihya ulumuddin when he returned to his place uh, to teach he returned from jerusalem to teach he emphasized on the adab on the spiritual uh, conduct emphasized on reviving the sunnah and then uh, to expand again the term fiqh which had been constructed uh, before remember he he and he could done he he has done this uh, because of that uh, personal experience and because of that uh, his teachings uh, gain students the students who carry out uh, his his lessons uh, there was a point of time when he was teaching you know 300 students before that was before he resigned but we can see that uh, whatever he taught whatever he instituted in the ihya ulumuddin and then uh, it was carried out by succession of scholars that led to the birth of of this generation of salahuddin which Uh, I'm I'm positively saying that uh, Sheikh Al Harawi was was part of that uh, from looking from his treatise that he talks about uh, reforming administration. The function of the ruler is like a shepherd, and the people are like uh, uh, his flock. So he must take care of the people. Mm-hmm. So he was bringing back this term. Uh, well, Sultan people translate them to be absolute ruler. This is again, you see, the same mistake that people used to translate Fatah into conquest. People translate Sultan into absolute ruler, but the Sultan means uh, a sovereign. But uh, he he is the one who receives Sultan from whom? From from God, the supreme ruler of 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 the world. So um, and the the people, they are they support. Uh, the sultan but it is the job of the sultan to protect uh, them and then he has people who the officers whom he must select carefully so that they be they would be his instruments of justice they would you know carry out uh, you know uh, uh, ordinances of the religion they would ensure that the people get fairness and justice and they would carry out uh, the reforms which would make the people better uh, themselves their inner selves uh, and then from there he said that uh, uh, so from there al harawi says al islah ar ra'iyah khairum min kathratil junud so the reform of the people's spiritual selves is much better is better than having a multitude of of armies mm-hmm. so we can see that so when the people realize this they become more united uh, they are unified unified in their world view and they're united in spirit so that was co- was what caused the generation of salahuddin to rise to support uh, the effort by salahuddin to Uh, once they are spiritually revived they become mm-hmm. united in world view they can come together as brothers in arms to liberate the territories which had been conquered and uh, under the rule of the crusaders mm. so that much i can say uh, for that now uh, brother ahmed no i think i think these are excellent points to touch upon because when when we talk about reforms You know, we yes. always talk about military reforms. We talk about economic reforms. We talk about socio-political reforms, but very rarely do you talk about the spiritual reforms or the spiritual revival. And when it comes to Salahuddin Al Ayyubi, 
um, as important as it is to understand the military treatises that he created um, and the emphasis that they did on the art of war, they played just as large of an emphasis on the spiritual side. And when we talk about the influence that Imam al-Ghazali, uh, one of the greatest scholars in Islam, um, had on Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, um, I was once told by a teacher that Salahuddin al-Ayyubi only ever carried two books with him, which were the Quran and the Ihya ulumuddin, the revival of the religious sciences, the reviving the inward, the spiritual component of Islam composed by Imam al-Ghazali. So, um, you know, when I, I find this topic very interesting because in today's world, in today's Muslim world, um, when I read about the Crusades, I feel like I'm reading about the 20th century. Um, when I read about the Crusades coming and taking over Palestine, I'm thinking about the Israelis coming in and taking over Palestine. When I see that the Muslims are at a point where they're fighting themselves um, during the time of Salah al-Din uh, al-Ayyubi, and they're only focusing on their city-states. Um, I think about today where the rulers are thinking about their countries and their states. Um, and when I see the disunity back then, I see the disunity now. So you can see the clear parallels. You can see the idea that history is continuously repeating itself. And to me, I think it's time, um, you know, we talk about, again, the economic problems of the Muslim world. We talk about the military reforms but when are we going to have a serious conversation on the spiritual reforms? Um, and if Imam al-Ghazali's works, which have had a profound influence on Salahuddin al-Ayyubi and, and on his men, because him and his men, they understood that they, they are one unit. And it's not just the king, the ruler that needs to have this spiritual grounding. It's including the soldiers. It's including everybody. Um, and one of the things I find quite profound is that the Prophet ﷺ said that, you know, near the end of time, the nations will come upon my nation, you know, as if they were like eating us. Um, and one of the Sahaba asked, what is, you know, what will be the reason for our fault then? And the Prophet ﷺ said, it's not that there's um, a short number, of, a small number of you. And they said, oh, what is it? Oh, Messenger of Allah. And then he responded that, um, dunya, uh, the love of this world and the fear of death and I think what Imam al-Ghazali's books which are really a commentary on the Quran um, they hope to instill that removing this fear of death that people have um, because I remember one military general said he said it's so hard to defeat the Muslims because if you defeat it, it because if they beat you in war then they go back happy and if you defeat them in war, they're happy because they're dying as martyrs. And so how do you beat a person who either way, they're going to come out as winners. So when I look at today's world, I'm thinking perhaps we need to revive this inward component of Islam that um, Imam al-Ghazali articulated centuries ago, which brought about the emergence of these great leaders of these great military generals, but also the leader of all of them, which was Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. And perhaps, you know, when we talk about what made Salahuddin so successful, we talk about these military treatises and how much he emphasized them. But also we talk about the importance of the spiritual dimension of this, of this brilliant uh, human being. Yeah, I think uh, this is where, I think uh, the, the philosopher uh, thinker and thinker of our time, uh, Professor Sayyid Naqib, Muhammad Naqib Al-Attas, in one of his uh, public lectures, he mentioned that history is now becoming a farbu'ayn, a uh, personal obligation upon uh, Muslims because we Muslims, we are so disconnected with our past. We have been disconnected uh, from our uh, tradition and this is what is causing this is the the the, the source of our present uh, predicament because uh, when we forget our history we forget ourselves where we are coming mm. from and what we are supposed to do here and where we are going uh, next because if you see since you mentioned the Quran and the yeah remember the Quran is filled with uh, stories with history. Uh, 
mean, uh, even one of the chapters, Al-Qasas, uh, meaning, you know, stories. And the Quran is filled with stories because that's what tickles the mind of men. People are drawn to narratives. And our narratives is that uh, the Quran talks about it, uh, where we are coming from, who we are, uh, what is our duties uh, now in this world, what we are supposed to do and where we are going. And all the Muslim scholars, they, they, they derive from here, they draw upon this. And I think uh, this is why the, that the part, coming back again to that particular paragraph uh, you, you cited, there we need to, well, we are concerned, we are you know, deeply concerned, gravely concerned with the plight of our uh, Muslim brothers and sisters in Palestine and all over, all over the world, in Afghanistan, even the Uyghurs in China. Uh, so, and we are, there's, there's, there's only so much that we can do uh, mm -hmm. because we do not present ourselves as a, as a united front. But uh, I think uh, there will come upon a time when uh, after we, we have regained our historical uh, consciousness, our spiritual uh, consciousness, we have revived ourselves spiritually, then uh, the worldview will be united uh, again. And then, then this issue of uh, uh, Jerusalem, then the history will become the judge of it. Who is the better custodian uh, of the city? Uh, then the history will bear witness. Uh, who in the longest run in history have been able to uh, take care of uh, that land to provide uh, fairness and justice and uh, to provide peace as the name itself uh, implied the Jerusalem Darussalam the, mm -hmm. the abode of, of peace I think that is my uh, input uh, brother Ahmed mm -hmm. great great points um, as always and I think if anybody just wants you know the short condensed version of why Salahuddin al Ayyubi was so successful, um, the military reforms as well as the spiritual reforms. And the two go hand in hand with one another. Um, and yeah. so um, I think with that, um, we will conclude. Uh, we greatly appreciate you sharing your time with us um, and sharing your PhD thesis with us as well. Um, yeah. the, the reason I felt the need to do this is there wasn't really as much information out there on this specific topic. Um, and so hopefully, inshallah, this, uh, this podcast can be the beginning of, um, of, uh, 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 of more discussion on this important topic. Inshallah. Inshallah. With that, we will conclude. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.